This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this all quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then he called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The gospel of the Lord. And so, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that we would hear not just the words of men, but the words of God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to take that as my text this morning from Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1003. Page 1003. Mark's gospel, chapter 8, and beginning at verse 31. I've titled my talk this morning, God's Way is the Best Way. God's Way is the Best Way. Now, this may not be self-evident to all of us across the board that God's way is the best way. And perhaps that's because God is God and we are not. Indeed, we read in Isaiah chapter 55 and beginning at verse 8, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And perhaps this is why Peter was having such a problem with the way that Jesus was heading and the way in which Jesus is calling us even now to follow him. Which leads us then to the first of two things that I want us to consider this morning. And the first is that God's way is the best way even when God's way seems the wrong way. <laughs> Indeed, notice again what Mark writes in beginning at verse 31. And, and Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, referring to himself, in fact, more often than not, when he referred to himself in the Gospels, he referred to himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic title. Jesus began to teach to the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days rise again. And then Mark says, and he said this plainly because in most instances, and certainly up to this point, he was rather in the habit of speaking in parables, which many people didn't understand. But this, he doesn't say in any kind of parabolic fashion. He says it rather plainly. Now that Jesus began to teach these uh, things to the disciples refers to the fact that Jesus had never mentioned anything like this before. Indeed, in light of everything that Jesus had been teaching up to this point, th this was new. And what Jesus is talking about here has nothing to do with the general expectation of the Jews in his day, of which he was one, about what the Messiah would do when he came and still... What Jesus is talking about refers to things that he said, he used the word must, that had to take place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, and that we might be saved from our sins. Indeed, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 15 of his first letter, wrote this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Or even Jesus Himself in this same Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Speaking of Himself, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I mean, this is the purpose of His coming. <laughs> and this saving us from our sins, according to Jesus, all begins with Jesus, the Son of Man, being rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. That is, Jesus being rejected by the members of the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling council that was based in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, wasn't at all what the disciples had in mind relative to Jesus and his relationship to the Sanhedrin. Their vision would have been that Jesus goes and wins over the Sanhedrin. And then all of them working together with Jesus, the Messiah, to establish a renewed kingdom of Israel which would include, amongst other things, the, de the defeat of the Romans in Israel and the casting them out of our land, which was no doubt the vision that, and expectation that lies behind Peter's fierce objection to what Jesus was saying. And still Jesus says it, as Mark says, that he began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark says in verse 32, and Peter took him. <laughs> in the message, Peterson says that, Jesus, that Peter grabbed him and took him aside, as it says here, and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? God come in human flesh and Peter decides to straighten him out because he doesn't like what he's saying. Verse 33, but turning and seeing the disciples, I mean, Peter takes him <laughs> and Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and passed Peter to the disciples. 
And Jesus returned the favor. He rebuked Peter. But he didn't just rebuke him. Notice the language. Turning and seeing the disciples, verse 33, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Or as Peterson has it in the message, Get out of my way, which is just exactly the same thing. I'm going somewhere. You're standing in my way. Get behind me. Get out of my way, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice that. God, Satan, man. And what an extraordinary statement. Get behind me, Satan. Someone has written this. To think as a man and not as God isn't just to be like a man. According to Jesus, to think as a man thinks and not as God thinks, and then to act on those thoughts, is to do what Satan does. Which begs the question, how often are we thinking like Satan and acting on his behalf without even knowing it? At home, at work, at school, even in the church, all the while, like Peter, thinking we're so right, that shall never be. <laughs> Indeed, if Peter or Satan, as, as, as the case may be, had gotten his way, Jesus' redemptive work on the cross would have been short-circuited. Satan's power would have been left intact and undiminished. And we would have been left dead in our trespasses and sins with no future but to stand guilty and condemned before the righteous judgment of God. And so that's the first thing. That God's way is the best way even when God's way seems the wrong way. Secondly, God's way is the best way even when God's way is the hard way. Indeed, notice again, beginning at verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, this is technical discipleship language. This was the kind of language that was used between the rabbis and their followers. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Number one. <laughs> or we have, as we have it in the New Living Translation, if anyone would come after me, he must give up his own way. <laughs> or as Peterson has it in the message, if anyone would come after me, he must let me lead. For those who are in the habit of always insisting on their own way, discipleship is almost a, a complete impossibility because the idea of giving up control is just too scary a thought that I should, what, be left at the mercy of God? This reminds me of something that John Burke wrote in his book, So Revolution. <clears throat> He said, over the years, I've learned that to benefit from God's way, I have to be willing to give up my own way. And this is scary at times. 
And still Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Literally, I mean, if, to put it in the simplest, to be able to say no to self and yes to him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, take up your cross is a, is a phrase that's often misunderstood. In fact, John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote this, The cross that Jesus is telling us to take up is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. The cross is a symbol of death. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, When Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. Indeed, the cross is a reference to crucifixion, and crucifixion is a reference to death, and not just death in any kind of general sense of the word, but a reference to a horrible death, a shameful death, an injustice, an act of man's inhumanity to man. In fact, uh, Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, wrote this, Crucifixion wasn't just another way one might get executed. There are very important differences, she says. Electrocutions, for instance, she says, were at least theoretically supposed to be humane and quick, but crucifixion as a method of execution was specifically designed to intensify and prolong agony. Take up your cross and follow me. Even worse than take up your electric chair and follow me. This is one of the reasons why Jesus stood trial alone. <laughs> Another difference, Fleming says. Another difference is that the person to be executed by elect. Electrocution is permitted the dignity of a mask or a hood. The electrocution uh, was to take place indoors, out of public view, and only with a few select people permitted to watch. Crucifixion, on the other hand, was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. The basement resulting from the public display was the chief feature of the method along with prolonged agony. The message to the public was this. This person is the scum of the earth, not fit to live, more an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch, pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We think it's a big deal when he asks us to do something that we consider an inconvenience. This is what he demands. In verse 35, he says, and uh, let me reason with you. Come, come, let us reason together, Jesus says. 
For whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would avoid the call in order to avoid the difficulty of the requirement and stay alive, whoever would save his life, it's very interesting in the... In the Revelation chapter 21, I think it's verse 8, and it's talking about all those who will not be in the kingdom of God. And one of the categories is cowards. What an extraordinary thing. There'll be no cowards there. Which reminds me too of something that Richard Wormbrand said at a, a talk that he was giving in Los Angeles many years ago. I, I would have been a, a very young man, I think, when he was giving it, but I watched it on YouTube. Now, Richard Wormbrand, as some of you know, he spent 14 years in Romanian prisons. The first sentence was, uh, was uh, three years, and uh, he wouldn't keep quiet, and so the communists threw him back in prison for another year. I was just reading the other day that he has uh, had, uh, he passed away now uh, a few years back. Uh, but they had, uh, they had gnawed or otherwise burned about 19 holes in his physical body. They had broken four of his vertebrae. They had beaten him relentlessly on the bottom of his feet. And on and on and on. In fact, he stood before Congress when he was, when, uh, he was released. I think somebody in Sweden paid $10,000 to the communist government to get him out of prison. And he ended up in the United States. And he founded what we know as the, the, um, the Voice of the Martyrs which Holy Cross supports. But he said in this speech in Los Angeles, he says, in the, this is not happening in the United States and perhaps may never happen. But there are believers in the United States who would suffer in this way and gladly if they were ever faced with it. Whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Indeed, the committed may lose their life in this age and even now, today, in the 21st century. People are losing their lives and losing their goods and losing their jobs and losing all sorts of things in restricted countries around. Keep your eye on India. It's very, very troubling what's happening there and the I was thought that maybe the Mahatma would, would turn over in his grave if he knew what was going on. But there's a, a radical religious political thing going on that would make other religions uh, illegal or otherwise they have to keep it to themselves or something like that. And so people are suffering. But the committed may lose their life in this age, but they will reign with Christ in the age to come. Indeed, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, writing beginning at verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're the children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Whatever it is that Christ is going to inherit from the Father, we are co-heirs with him. Provided, Paul says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And who shall separate us from the love of God, he asks. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no! No, we're not just sheep to be slaughtered. That may, be, that may happen. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus says, and so if you would come after me, indeed if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it, and Jesus continues in verse 36, and, and, and what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You bring nothing into this world, you take nothing out. Your soul is a gift, you didn't buy it. What price could you pay? And if you can imagine not following through on what he's calling you to do and then to stand in judgment before him and now what do you want to do? You want to make a purchase? You don't have anything. And what would God want? Your monopoly money? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And of course the answer to that is nothing. Because the world is passing away. John, in his first letter to the community of believers to whom he was writing, he says, in chapter 2 of his first letter, don't love the world or the things in the world. If, the love, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The, the, the love of the world is not something that God produces in you. It's produced by something else. And I think we made reference to that just a little bit ago. And we may not know it, just like Peter didn't know what was inspiring him to say what he said. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But notice, but whoever does the will of God, <laughs> that is, whoever goes God's way, abides forever. The world is passing away, but those who do the will of God abide forever. You can't get rid of them. They rest in the hands of God. And so Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. For whoever is ashamed of me, can you imagine? You ever felt ashamed? Oh, so uh, Bob, I understand you're a Christian, huh? 
Well, you know, I mean, I was raised that way. Uh, <laughs> Sound familiar? You're one of Jesus' disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? That wasn't me. Come on, man. You're in Judea. Your northern accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. I tell you, I don't know the man. Cockle-doodle-doo. For whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulteress, that's just another word for unfaithful, this unfaithful and sinful generation, wanting their praise rather than the praise of God. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I suppose that begs the question, and where will you be on that day when... Jesus comes in the glory of his Father with all the holy angels. <laughs> John Burke again, in his book, So Revolution, he said, to experience true life, the life we desire, we must be willing to give up the life we think we want. And the fear of losing that life keeps most of us from ever finding true life at all. And so I wonder, what's it going to be for you? Your way or God's way? And if you haven't yet decided, I want to commend to you God's way. Because God's way is the best way. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Sometimes, Lord, we don't think you love us because your primary concern for us is not that we be comfortable. You comfort us when we need comfort, but being comfortable all the time, like what is so important in our own culture, isn't on your radar screen. You, you don't want us to be comfortable. You want us to be great. You, you, you call us to the sorts of things that if we would do it, and do it not in the flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, the end result and the consequence of all of that is coming to our end and hearing you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But all too often, even in the church, we settle for so much less. And God forbid that any sitting here should ever experience in future. And here you say, depart from me for I never knew you. And then we say, but, uh, but I pastored the church. And I taught Sunday school and I was on the vestry. And, and I, I went on a mission trip to Guatemala. And, I, and, I, and, I, and Jesus, you say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. God, in your mercy, deliver us from that. And in the meantime, give us a taste for these things. 
Give us an appetite for these things that we might chase after you and your kingdom. Even as Jesus said, seek first above all else. You can live without the world, but you can't live without the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things you worry about. Those will be added to you. He'll take care of you. He'll be a good shepherd to you. You shall not want, but be faithful and follow him with all your heart. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.